All right, get your Bibles open. Acts chapter 5 is where we are. Acts chapter 5. We're resuming a series uh, here in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to be uh, at verse 12 in just a moment. But uh, let me say that no, no other event, no other era in history, no other people so altered the flow of human history than the first disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, Think about it. From one small church in the city of Jerusalem, there was only one church. It was 120 people that were in this church. From one small church in that city, the message of the gospel spread to the entire world as the first Christians proclaimed the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And um, these are history-altering events. There's just no way to dispute it. And the book of Acts, when we come back to the book of Acts now, it's the story of these first Christians, and we're in this series to hear their story and then to be challenged in our own life, challenged in our own mission for Jesus Christ. And we're dropping here into the middle of chapter uh, chapter 5, and this is actually message number 15 in the series. In case you're new to Harvest, (laughs) we're jumping right in here, and The curious thing about this is the outline for this message was prepared 68 weeks ago, 68 weeks ago. And when we were resuming the series and I put this back into our our calendar to resume it this week, I wanted to go back to where I had last preached it and I wanted to make sure I was preaching the right passage. You'd think that I remember all my sermons, but I don't. And and so I I went to back and I went and looked and here was this outline sitting here. Because I had prepared this, we were in Acts in March of 2020, and I had prepared this outline earlier in the week, and it was sitting there on a Friday, and you remember the famous Friday, March 13th, 2020, when the orders came down, and, um, and, and we, had to, we had to shut everything down, everybody, we went to live stream only, and there was no uh, in-person worship. You remember, right? It was two weeks to flatten the curve. You remember, Right? 68 weeks ago, I love irony. Don't you love irony? 68 weeks ago, it was two weeks to flatten the curve. I mean, I just love that. Uh, so this outline was there, and we, we went to a different series and set it aside, and so here it is, and it's coming back to us now. And, and in this passage, we're going to be talking about um, obeying God above all others. I think it's curious that this is where we paused, and this was the outline Obeying God above all others, obeying God above government, obeying God above other leaders, obeying God above even ourselves. So we're going to talk about obedience. But let's understand what biblical obedience really is. One lexicon puts it this way. And by the way, I'll just say this about obedience. Obedience is not a popular concept today because we live in an era of autonomy. We live at a time when it's about my truth. Oh, I have my truth. I know you think you believe. I have my truth. And obedience doesn't fit well with autonomy. It doesn't fit well with I have my truth. But here it is from the word of God, obedience. This um, lexicon says that obedience is submission to authority or reason, conforming to what has been advised or commanded. Now, when you look at a definition like that one, there's no room for wavering to the right or the left on that. It, it's, it's, the words are submit and conform. 
There's no equivocation possible with submit and conform. So we hear a word from God. This is the way Christians approach this. We hear a word from God and we're on it. We obey it. Just as the first Christians heard it and obeyed it. And we're going to see in the passage today, they heard it and obeyed it in the face of great opposition to obeying it. So Acts chapter 5, we're going to read 21 verses here, starting at verse 12. Let me read this and then we'll, we'll go after this. And, and again, the notes are uh, at hbc.info and hopefully you have your Bible open, whether it's an analog version of the Bible or you have it on your smartphone or tablet. That's great. Acts 5.12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him They called together the council and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, when I obey God above all others, this is what we're going to go after. When I obey God above all others, four things are going to be true of me. First this, I will see His Spirit move. 
I'm going to see God work. In fact, uh, this book is more commonly, most commonly called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the titles of books are not inspired as the, as the Scriptures are, uh, but many commentators have pointed out, you know, we could actually call this the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's what we see. The Holy Spirit promised in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2. And then from then on, what you see is the people of God moving and acting because they're empowered by the Holy Holy Spirit. In fact, in chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, Peter was so empowered by the Holy Spirit, he, this fisherman, stood up and preached a message, and there were 3,000 converts. 3,000 people were baptized on that one day and added to the church. Now, there are no other churches. This is the first church, and it is on its launch day. It's being planted. This is their first ever service, and they have 3,000 people who joined the church that day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And their dependence on the Spirit to work continues as we're seeing throughout the entire book. You come to chapter, chapter 5, verse 12, look what it says. Many signs and wonders, many miracles, many unexplainable things were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles as the Spirit was working through them. And they, speaking of the Christians, they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, this is just a a little section of the temple area. It's part of an outer court. It was just an area where they could say, hey, you know what? Let's all just get together at this place. All of us who believe in Jesus, this is where we're going to meet. It's it's just like saying to your family, you're at Wonderland. We're going to meet just outside of, name your favorite ride, behemoth. We're going we're gonna to meet outside the gate of behemoth, that's where, or Leviathan, or whichever one. We're going to meet there. Or, you know what, the church in Barrie, we're going to meet together at Meridian Place. Everybody just meet 10 a.m. Sunday morning, Meridian Place. We're all going to be there. That's what, that's what this is all about. This is just a place where they're going to meet. Now, verse 13, none of the rest speaking about the people who were not believers, because now thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem believe, but none of the rest of the people dared join them. The non-believers were not excited about showing up to Solomon's portico for this. Okay, notice, but these same people still held them in high esteem. So they were like a little bit afraid to show up where the church was meeting, and yet they're still kind of like in awe of what's going on. I mean, the work of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem in these days was so shocking that people who had not yet given their life to follow Christ were simultaneously afraid of them and intrigued by them, in awe of what was happening, drawn to it, but afraid at the same time. Uh, Cheryl and I, I had uh, two weeks off uh, before this past week, and it was wonderful to have a little bit of a break, and I was really hoping to get away, but then I found out that we could not go away because we were expecting, we were expecting our third grandchild, and I found out as the, as the pappy, I found out that the nanny says you can't leave town if a new grandchild's going to be born. This is what I found out. I don't think men think that way. We're like, let's just go out of town. I'm on vacation. And, and Nanny's like, no way. We have a third grand. Now, thankfully, Emily delivered on the first weekend of vacation, so we were able to go away the second week of vacation. And all the men said, awesome. <laughs> and, and 
So we got away. We went down to Niagara Falls because you can't go too far right now. So we went down to Niagara Falls. We love going down there. And we just, we did the classic, you know, cliche tourist thing. We went down to the falls on the first day. And, you know, not very many, um, not very many tourists at all. Really, um, 90% of the tourists were from Quebec uh, because it was St. Jean-Baptiste weekend. And so they had nowhere else to go. So they went to Niagara Falls. And, but there was lots of room down on Table Rock. And tell me that this isn't your favorite spot, too. You just go to Table Rock. You go right to the edge of the falls, right up to the rail. And you're really only like this far away from the water flowing over the edge of the falls. How many people know the spot I'm talking about, right? It's like it's the best spot. And it was no trouble getting there. And, and there you just you watch the crystal clear water just pouring over just pouring over. It's the most awesome thing. And I love it. And I could stay there for hours just watching the awesomeness. And I'm so struck by it. I'm so in awe of it. I love it. And I'm absolutely terrified at the same time. (laughs) Isn't that true? Because you, you almost sense, look how refreshing that water looks. Look how awesome that water looks. And you just start to feel yourself being drawn into it. And then all of a sudden you're terrified because you feel yourself falling over the falls and crashing into the rocks at the bottom. Simultaneously in awe and terrified by what you see. And that's exactly what verse 13 is describing. These people in Jerusalem, they're in awe. They're like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And it terrifies me to think about what God is doing right now. It terrifies me. So notice verse 14, more than ever, believers were, were added to the Lord. Now, I've already said 3,000. Chapter 2, verse 2 says 3,000 people. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 4, it's 5,000 people. And then by chapter 5, they're not even counting anymore. It's just like a lot of people, just multitudes of people, men and women, everyone's coming to Jesus. Powerful miracles are happening. These miracles are God's way of authenticating this preaching of the gospel, Verse 14, so that people are even taking the sick into the street, they're laying them out on a cot, and they're, they're no, Peter's going to pass by here, maybe his shadow will fall on them, and it seems totally superstitious and weird, until you think about the fact that Acts is volume two of Luke-Acts, Luke is writing Acts, Luke wrote Luke. And in chapter 18, chapter 8, I believe, I want to get this right, chapter 8, verse 44, there was, remember this story? There was this woman... And she was sick, and she knew Jesus was passing by, and she thought to herself, if only I can touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Incredible faith. Weird, weird, but incredible. And she touched his cloak, and what happened? She was healed. Again, we can't explain that, and we don't know for sure. It says people were doing this. We don't know if those people were actually healed, but what we do know for sure is that People thought so much of what was going on through the apostles that they were willing to do something as crazy as this. Somehow, Peter's shadow would just pass over them and heal them. The Spirit was working so powerfully, and the reputation of what the apostles were doing was spreading everywhere. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So people are coming into town now, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, those um, oppressed by demons. And notice they, they were all healed. These ones were all healed. Now, why is all of this happening? I mean, you could go back to the spiritual answer, well, God was willing it. But really, when you come down to it, the reason why all of this is able to happen in the city of Jerusalem 
It's because the apostles were given a simple command, and they obeyed it. They heard the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, and they did what he said. The incredible thing about this is it's not deep theology. There's, There's nothing here that's advanced doctrinal study. This is so simple. It's it's so simple that we could port this message down to the north end of the building and take it into any Harvest Kids room, maybe not the nursery, but we could take it to any Harvest Kids room and they'll understand the simplicity of what Jesus said. Here's what he said to them. Stay here, wait for the Holy Spirit, be my witnesses. That's it. That's as deep as the theology gets today. Stay here. Wait for the Holy Spirit and be my witnesses. And that's what they did. And because they did that, the Holy Spirit was able to fill them and empower them and use them to do all these awesome things and to see these incredible results. 3,000, 5,000, multiple numbers of people coming to faith in Christ. People saved in the thousands and baptized. The point is obvious. Obey what you know to be true from the Word, and that will free the Holy Spirit to move in and through you in ways that you could never have imagined. Refuse to obey. Refuse to obey. And God Himself may, in fact, discipline you. And you and I should live with some fear of that. The... the, the, disadvantage of preaching this message in the middle of chapter 5 right now and not in proximity to the first 11 verses of chapter 5 is that we missed the fact that in those first 11 verses we're told the story of Ananias and Sapphira who professed Christ, presumably were baptized, and then lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to the apostle, lied to the church in terms of the offering that they brought. What happened to them? One, After another, they drop dead as a warning to the church. And God telling us, if you're not going to obey me in the very simplest things that I've told you to do, then please understand, you may fall under the discipline of the Lord. So far better for us to obey what we know to be true, free the Spirit out to work in us, and through us in ways that we would not have imagined before. Now, it's not all miracles and growth, because when I obey God above all others, this is also true. Notice this secondly. I will face ongoing, even intense, opposition. Now, we're hearing, we're hearing a lot of warning bells in these days um, about persecution in Canada, persecution of the church in Canada, and... Um, I think that they're justified in some measure. I think that some of these warning bells are justified, that there are some things that we should be concerned about as Christians with respect to that. But also, I believe that they are slightly exaggerated. And I believe that social media sensationalizes a lot of things that are happening today. And I believe, I'm a little little hesitant to say this next part, Um, But some pastors, not me, but some pastors sometimes exaggerate things for effect. Can you imagine that a pastor would do that? 
So I think there's some exaggeration going on. I think there's some sensationalization that's going on in social media. But when I look at what's really happening, if you look into this, when I look at what's really happening in a genuinely persecuted country, and then and then and when I look at what I read here in Acts chapter 5 and what's going to happen to these apostles, and then I compare that to our situation, I don't see persecution today here. Not compared to any number of other countries in the world today, not compared to Acts chapter 5. The risk factor for me to be arrested today for standing up here and preaching the gospel, the risk factor is zero. The risk factor for you being here today to hear the gospel preached is zero. But all over the world today, in Asia, in Africa, in places even in Eastern Europe, in Latin America, there are pastors who got up this morning who went to preach the Word of God to their churches who did not know if they would go home to their families again at the end of the day. There are churches around the world today who met today who don't know if they're ever going to be able to meet again. That's persecution. That's not happening here. And Peter and company, they knew the threat was real. It, it, again, we're, we're jumping into this 68 weeks after we preached the last message in, in Acts, but it took us like 15 weeks to get to that point in Acts chapter 5, and we took a break after we finished the end of Luke's gospel, and so we have this notion that it's such a long period of time before, you know, from the events of the end of Luke's gospel to now, but it's just a few weeks. I mean, what's happening here with them being brought before the religious leaders, you only have to step back a few weeks to get to Luke chapter 22 when Jesus was arrested in the garden. If you really want to compare it, it's like Luke 22 happened in March, April of this year, and here we are in in the first week of July, and that's the time frame. So all the religious leaders that Peter and John and the apostles are having to face are the same guys that arrested Jesus. All the Roman officials that saw to Jesus' crucifixion, they're all the same ones. The situation is real, it's intense. They see all of this happening. Verse 17 these leaders, they see it all happening. The high priest, he, he rises up. He's, he's upset at what's happening in the city. And he says, all who were with him also rose up. That is the party of the Sadducees. Now understand something about the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees. They get a, a bad rap. But the Pharisees were the, were the biblically uh, adherent. They, they were the religious ones. They were passionate about their faith. That was the Pharisees group. But the Sadducees group, another group within Judaism, the Sadducees were the liberals. The, the Sadducees um, were the ones who were um, affluent. They were power brokers. They were collaborators with Rome. They wanted to maintain the status quo. They were taking advantage of the situation of Rome being there. It was good for them. And they were not religious. 
They were not into the Torah. They weren't into the spiritual aspects of Israel. And they especially, more than anyone else, they did not like what was going on in Jerusalem with the apostles. And in fact, verse 17 says that they were filled with jealousy. And the jealousy was rooted in the fact that they saw their power ebbing away with all these people turning, over to, turning their lives over to Jesus Christ. And so verse 18, they arrested the apostles again and put them in the public prison. And, um, and, and they're just on the program now. We're going to end this. So verse 21, jump down to there, the last part. They called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel. They sent to the prison to have them brought. And problem, they're not there. Now, even in persecution, you can see this. Even in persecution, the Holy Spirit is at work, amen? Even when the church is being pressed hard, and things are difficult. In fact, I would say this. The evidence from history is that the church is actually stronger in the midst of persecution. You know, so here we are. We're just praying. Oh, God, keep us safe. God, keep our freedoms in place. God, I pray everything goes smoothly. God, help prosper our church. We pray all those things. And then we pray over here. We say, we say oh, and God, give us more converts and, and, and make our church alive. And all. We don't realize that this prayer for safety and, and prosperity may be in conflict with our prayer for the church to come alive and have more converts. And God may say, okay, you want this? You want more converts? You want more people who are passionate about me? The way that's going to happen is persecution. I'm going to put the pressure on We see the Holy Spirit at work. He's at work here in Acts 5. We're going to see that in the next point. They go to jail. They go to the jail to bring them out, verse 22, but they didn't find them in the prison. So they go back and they report, verse 23, we found the prison securely locked. The guards are still standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, understatement coming up in verse 24, they were greatly perplexed or super confused. And they're wondering, notice the phrasing, they're wondering what this would come to. They're wondering what this prison break is going to mean. They're they're wondering, oh, this is just another crazy thing that's happened. We're wondering how this is going to take over the city and the nation and what this is all going to mean for us. What What it doesn't say they're thinking about is how the escape actually happened. They're not even entertaining that question. They never even asked the apostles about that because they don't want to know. Now, while they're thinking about all of this, fixated on the implications of the escape, verse 25, someone came and told them, look, the men that you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. They're obeying God. They're fulfilling the mission. They went back to the very simple command that God had given. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, making really careful political decisions right now. They just went up to them in the crowd and said, hey, look, guys, uh, you're supposed to be in jail. And the religious leaders would like to ask you guys some questions. So, you know, they're looking around at the crowd. If you wouldn't mind just coming with us and answering a few questions, that'd be awesome. And it plays out that way because the text tells us they went and brought them not by force because they're afraid of being stoned by the people. This is a genuine populist outrising, a revival that's gripping the city. And so they act in a really savvy manner. They're smart on their part because they know they have lost the moral authority to govern. 
by their actions, by their decisions, they have come up against something far, someone far more powerful than themselves. They're battling the Holy Spirit. And by the way, having said all of this and my comments earlier, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't persecution in Canada today for Christians. There will always be some level of persecution of Christians. But if you're living the Christian life right, there's always going to be someone who's mad at you because of it. There's some level of persecution of Christians and the church in Canada. It's not at the level of imprisonment for pastors or the shuttering of churches in Canada at this point. And I know what some of you are thinking right now, but wait a minute, I know about pastors that have been arrested this year. I know about churches that have been shuttered, and I want to speak to that. I want to say more about what's happened during the pandemic in Canada. I want to say that it is not persecution that we have seen in places like Windsor and Waterloo, in Elmer and out in Alberta. It's not persecution but self-inflicted consequences of disobeying lawful orders. That's what it is. Self-inflicted consequences of disobeying lawful orders that relate to a health crisis that was gripping not only our country, but the world. They were not being persecuted no Christian has been persecuted for preaching the gospel. If we were persecuted for preaching the gospel, if that was the intent of government, then you would be able to go for a restaurant meal inside the restaurant. You would have been able to get a haircut before last Wednesday. You could stop by the gym to go and work out. You could do all of those things. But you can't. Because it's not about the gospel. It's not persecution that we've been seeing. Here's the thing with some Christians. They've fallen into a trap about controversy. And Walter Martin, who spent his life teaching the church, he's now with the Lord, teaching the church about cults and right doctrine. He said this, controversy for the sake of controversy is sin. And there are many Christians who are just perpetuating controversies, and if that's you or someone you know, just, just creating controversy over things that are not the gospel, well, it's sin. It needs to be repented of. Controversy for the sake of, the, of controversy is sin. Controversy for the sake of truth, gospel, is divine command. And so if you're going to create contention by how you live, what you believe, and what you say, you have to ensure that it is for the righteous cause of Christ and not some lesser, self-serving, misplaced cause. If someone hates you, if someone rejects you, if someone maligns you, to others, if someone ends a relationship with you, all of which are forms of opposition and persecution, let it be for the sake of the actual gospel. Let it be for the sake of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again, 
and let it be for no other reason. In fact, that's what we see next. When I obey God above all others, I will carry on the mission as a witness of Christ. The gospel mission will be the driving force in my life. It's going to be my compulsion, my raison d'etre. We go back to verse 19. Now, we skipped over these verses. We're going to see what happened to the apostles during the night. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, remember, just a little life lesson here. But remember that when they went to the prison, the doors were closed. So the angel had gone and opened the doors, according to this verse, let them out, and then closed the door, which is a wonderful life principle. If you open a door, just close it. Just close it. That's going to be helpful in every home. Does that happen in your home or not? If you open a door, girls, just close it again, right? Just close the door. The angel does that. It's wonderful. You see, you get so many great insights here into the text. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said... Here's another opportunity for them to obey. Verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, what do you you think they did at that command? Well, we know what they did. We've read the whole passage. But you think in this moment, they could have actually thought, you know what? It's been kind of crazy up till now. There's now thousands of people in Jerusalem who know this message. Maybe we ought to just take the heat off for a bit, cut our losses, just boot it out of Jerusalem, go set up somewhere else and just not stir things up as much. Maybe we just ought to say, you know, this is our second time getting out of prison, and and maybe we just ought not to push our luck so much. But no, they don't say that. Verse 21, and when they heard this, they did exactly what the angel said, entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. It was back to the mission. It was back to the mission because there's nothing else but the mission. And this isn't, this isn't simply for, you know, mission. You know, I don't want anybody to sit here and just go, you know what, but that, that's, it's for professionals. It's for preachers and missionaries and pastors to do. It's for those who get a paycheck. Those are the ones who ought to be doing this kind of stuff. But it's not. It's for every Christian. If you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your mission. Every one of us is on this mission. We all have to contribute to the success of the mission, to the advance of the gospel. We all have to contribute our own passions and spiritual gifts to this mission. And so the question for each one of us is, this, is, is really this. In what way, you ask yourself this question, in what way am I personally contributing to the mission of the gospel to make disciples and plant churches? Every person in the room, if you profess Christ, in what way am I personally contributing to the mission of the gospel to make disciples implant churches. Everyone needs an answer to that. And would my contribution demonstrate that I am, like these apostles, all in for Jesus? And by contributing, we're talking about your talents and your abilities, the things that you're good at, your time and your energy, some of that has to be carved out for the gospel your financial giving, your personal devotion. In essence, we're asking the question, are the priorities of my life aligned with the priorities that we see in these first disciples? Do I have such a passion for the gospel of Christ that I would put it all on the line, that I would risk it all, that I would sacrifice for Christ in order to see those who don't know him come to faith in him? When I obey God, I'm willing to go there and I'm willing to carry out that mission. And further, this is the last 
truth you're going to see in your notes here. I will experience a holy boldness in doing so. Look at verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. It's it's just interesting because there's no actual question that's recorded for us. He doesn't actually ask them any questions unless it's not recorded. They still don't ask about how they managed to get out of prison. They don't really care about that. They don't, well, they do care, but they're concerned about the answer. They don't want to know. They're aware that the miraculous things um, in the city have been happening, but they're also entrenched, so entrenched in their own worldview and beliefs that they can't entertain anything that contradicts their own worldview. That sounds like today, by the way. Verse 28, the latter part, this is what they say. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Who's the this man that that they're talking about? Who is it? It's Jesus. They're talking about, they can't even say his name. They don't even want to utter his name. This man is the best that they can do. They're still only seeing the whole thing as political. It's all about power. And then the apostles, they make this line in the sand statement that should be underlined or highlighted in your Bibles Verse 29, we must obey God. We must, remember our definition, we must submit to his authority. We must uh, conform to his command. We must obey God rather than men, rather than submit to your authority, rather than conform to your command. Now again, the irony of waiting 68 weeks between the time this, this message was outlined and today The irony is that this verse was used by uh, many Canadian pastors to justify justify disobeying provincial orders about meeting together. And those pastors would say, we must obey God rather than men, and we must do that by meeting three criteria. We have to meet in person, it has to be in this place, and it has to be at this time. And they lock themselves in. It has to be in person. It has to be at this place. And it has to be at this time. And in their zeal, they argued that we must obey God rather than men with respect to meeting together. But meeting together while an outflow of the gospel is not the gospel. In their zeal, they missed the whole point. Well-intentioned, but they missed the central aspect of the mission. And, And when we are, in fact, and there could come a day, when we are, in fact, justified at disobeying the government. But we were never prevented from preaching the gospel. We should defy when the government says you can't preach. We should defy the government when they say you can't preach that. But is that what we were told? At no point did Premier Ford say you can't preach the gospel, Harvest. At no point did the Prime Minister say you can't preach the good news of Jesus Christ. 
At no point was the, was the gospel ever hindered or prohibited. But the apostles were actually told that. Don't speak anymore in this name. Don't preach Jesus. Don't preach that message. They say in verse 28 here, notice, we strictly charged you, past tense. We strictly charged you. You got to go back to chapter 4, verse 18 to see this. We told you not to preach in his name. Again, we were never told that. In fact, this 68 weeks has opened up brand new opportunities for us. We had every opportunity to expand the reach of our message to more people because we, like thousands of other churches, on that Friday, March 13th, 2020, had to make a decision in 48 hours to pivot to live stream, something we were not doing before. Thousands and thousands of churches around the world all of a sudden were putting all of the message of the gospel every Sunday all over the world through the internet. God's allowed us to reach more people. It's been awesome in these weeks when we have been able to meet again in person to meet people who have been attending Harvest coming here for months and have never been in the building. To hear the testimony of people who are coming back to Jesus or coming to Jesus for the first time and to hear the testimonies as people have been baptized in this very room week after week. God has been working. We've expanded the reach of our message. It hasn't been ideal. I mean, let's all admit it. It hasn't been ideal in terms of relationship and fellowship. We all admit that. But it's a short blip. 68 weeks. The church we're talking about was founded 2,000 years ago. I don't know how many weeks that is, but it's a lot of weeks. 68 weeks, that's a, that's a blip. It's a blip in history. It says nothing. And it served as a wake-up call for us. It's changed us and changed our ministry. And along the way, as we've continued to preach the gospel unrestricted and on this new platform... Again, we've seen people come to us. Some have been saved. Many have been baptized. And the church has continued to fulfill its mission. We've never missed a beat. God ordained for us to go through something terrible in order to see Him work powerfully and in a new way. And it is this holy boldness that must grip us. And it is a holy boldness about nothing else but the gospel. And that's how, that's how it ends here. Look at what the apostles say as they're talking to these religious leaders. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus right to the resurrection, whom you killed, talk about holy boldness, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. There's no equivocation. There's no wavering to the right or to the left. There is only Christ. And we are witnesses, verse 32 says. We are witnesses. Back to the original mission, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. We're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. You see Him working all over the city. 
I mean, it's so easy for us to be drawn off message. So easy to argue and fuss about things that do not matter. Social media is full of it. So easy to give the bulk of our time and energy to pursuits and interests that are temporal rather than eternal. To waste our time on these things. To invest so much of ourselves in the here and now rather than the hereafter. But not these apostles. They put it all out there. I think about these things in terms of of your own life, where you're living right now. But this is what they put out there. They put their security on the line, personal security. They put their prosperity on the line. They put any sense of entitlement, I deserve this, life owes me. They put leisure on the line. They put relationships on the line. They put freedom on the line. They put family on the line. For one thing only, the mission, the gospel. The religious leaders pressured them, pressured them here to abandon the one mission they'd been given by Jesus. Make disciples, Jesus said. Teach them to observe all things, Jesus said. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth, Jesus said. Despite the pressure and the persecution, they obeyed God rather than men. So let's ask God for that same boldness. Let's make the same definitive declaration of obedience to God no matter what. I'll do, I'll say, I'll go. When we do that, we set the Holy Spirit up to work in a powerful surprising, miraculous way in and through us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your kindness toward us. And uh, this is a challenging word uh, for all of us to think about that mission that you want us on. There's many thousands and thousands of people in Barrie, in Simcoe County, in this province, across this country, who don't know Jesus, who need the gospel. And God, you've laid that on us to fulfill that mission, to be your witnesses. And so, God, I pray that we would be very sober-minded about what we've heard today. We'd be thinking hard about this challenge to obey you in all things and then to see your Holy Spirit working in and through us. God, where change needs to happen, where decisions need to be made, I pray, God, that we would have the courage and the faith to believe you as we make those changes. Work, Holy Spirit, first in each of our hearts to make us more like these first followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.